Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. The hosts are members of the Allen NLP team at the Allen Institute for AI. Hello, our guest today is Dana Gurari, an assistant professor, as well as founding director of the Image and Video Computing Group in the School of Information at the University of Texas at Austin. We invited Dana today to talk to us about visual question answering for real users. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Your hosts today are Anna Marasovic, myself. I am a young investigator at the LNNLP team and my colleague, Brady Dasigi, who is a research scientist in the team. Okay, so I think we can start by first defining what is visual question answering and what is the motivation of this task? Yes, so visual question answering is to answer a question about visual content. So that can be a given image or a video. And so an example of what color is my shirt, I would answer green. What is the motivation? There are many. From its inception, that really got it, got a lot of people in the AI community excited. There were two key motivators. One was this idea of solving the general artificial intelligence problem. If you can answer any question about any visual content, then arguably you've mastered computer vision. (laughs) So that's kind of the dream. In a more application-driven scenario, there's already at present a lot of people who rely on this visual question answering application for their daily lives. And that's people who are blind, who are trying to learn about what food they're going to eat when they wake up, what clothes they're going to wear, whether they're taking the right medication when they pick up a bottle. And so that's going to be the application that exists at present that the AI community is also trying to see. And how has this task been approached typically? Like what what are the most dominant approaches to WeQA and what are the challenges of that approach for a real world application? So there's approaches that are used in industry and in practice, and those are going to be human-based. And so since over a decade Over a decade ago, there were applications where someone could pick up, for example, their phone, record a spoken question, have that sent off, and then have remote people who are either paid or volunteers provide an answer and have that be written. And usually that turnaround time would be somewhere between one and two minutes. Nowadays, there's faster turnaround times. Those human-based services have improved. So that is one approach where it exists in practice. As far as where we are in the research realm, there is the typical way to do it is you embed the question using, for example, a recurrent neural network, choose your favorite. More recently, choose your favorite transformer architecture. Then you would also embed your image into some representation using a convolutional neural network of some sort and combine those two embeddings into another space where you could output an answer. And presently, the research community treats delivering an answer as a classification problem. What does that mean? The answer can only exist from one of about 3,000 predefined answers. So that's the standard. And of course, there's a lot more bells and whistles that go on because this has been going on for over six years. But that's the basic framework of how the AI community has been tackling the problem. 
And early in your research uh, in this space, you also recognize that the data that we have collected for VQA is not the best suited for uh, the real-world applications. So can you tell us a little bit more about how has uh, VQA data been collected previously and what were the issues with that data and how you addressed those issues in your own work? Yeah, so the predominant way that the first, there was one data set that came out from um, Devi Parikh's group, who's now at Georgia. And what they did was follow the similar pipeline that other people do, which is you take some massive set of images that exist, and then you augment metadata to So that collection of images was originally MS Coco images. And that original data set was collected by, it was collected to try to have people address the task of classifying and locating content images and a preset number of categories which is final data set basically revolves around 80 categories. Okay. So large collection of images that were collected around 80 categories. Her group picked up that data set and said, okay, we have a large number of images. Now let's go to the crowd and pay people in the crowd to make up questions about those images. That's what they did. And then they said, now that we have questions about images, let's go back to the crowd and ask them to return an answer about those questions about the images. And that's what that was huge. That really got the community very excited about visual questioning. I remember going to the first workshop that was hosted, I believe it was in 2015, maybe it was 2016. I can't remember, but it was a, it was a patch. There are hundreds of people in there and everyone is excited to get on top of this new wave. So that, that's kind of the instigator for the community to really jump onto this problem. And then after that, we were able to start to think about, well, we know that in the AI community, this might be reasonable for trying to address this general AI problem. But what about the real users? And so I partnered up with another colleague, Jeffrey Bigham, who is now at Carnegie Mellon University, who had deployed this application back in 2011 where it was an app where people could take a picture, record a spoken question, have that sent off and get an answer. And when he developed that app, it went viral amongst people who are blind. Between 2011 and 2015, over 10,000 people submitted over 70,000 requests. Oh, wow. Yeah. And interestingly, what I'm told from Jeff is that before the remote crowd workers were paid, it was him and his students that would sit there and start answering the questions. And then they realized, oh my gosh, we can't do this. We won't be able to do any research. And then so they figured out how to employ on crowds. And so that that was a real practical scenario where he had the good fortune that he put out an app that went viral. So that was the first step. And then the other insight that he had when creating this app was he put in a clause it allowed for the users to opt in to having their data be used for data set creation to support downstream algorithm development. How he did that, people then could opt in and say, yes, I want my data to support future efforts. And that's where my team jumped in. We grabbed the data. Critical component is to make sure there's no personally identifiable information in that. So we scraped the data, including myself, over and over and over to remove any possible private information or personal information and resulted with a set of images 
with the questions asked about them. We went and collected answers from the crowd to make sure we got high quality results. And then we released that. So if you look at how it was originally done with the group at Georgia Tech, you know, they did what was the standard protocol, which is you collect meta- metadata about some standard image set. What we were able to do was go and get raw data from the big messy world. Yeah. And so it revealed lots of discrepancies between what is the AI community, what had they been looking at, and what would this particular population of people who are blind really need to be addressed. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit more about those discrepancies? Uh, can you give us, if it's possible, to illustrate with some examples as well? Absolutely. So one of the really interesting things that came up was that people who are blind often wanted to learn about pets. They wake up and they go to their cupboard and they say, hmm, what do I want for breakfast? And they will not be able to read what's on the cereal boxes. Or they open up the fridge and they say, what kind of yogurt do I want? And they can't read the labels. And so that's one example of text. But this is the case for going to a restaurant and being able to read a menu. Or at a restaurant, trying to find the right sugar packet, whether you want brown sugar, white sugar, or something that's sugar-free, and choosing which one to put in your tea or coffee. To reading currency, numbers on currency bills reading CAPTCHAs when navigating the internet, reading about medicine and deciding, can I give my child who's 10 years old this Advil or is that not safe for that age? Okay, so really talking about reading text for many different purposes. And that was unique to the real users. That was not found much within the, the data set that had originally came before what we put out. And so because of the rest of our data set, the AI community took on this new challenge of looking at visual question answering when you have text. So answering questions about text and images. So that was one interesting problem that emerged from a data set mismatch. Another one is that if you think about people who are blind, it's pretty astounding they can even take a good picture to capture the content. And they can't. They have learned how to do photography over time because they do this over and over to get information in their database. Nonetheless, you're going to find that some percentage of those images are insufficient quality to recognize. And even for higher quality images, they still cannot you know, have the content of interest perfectly focused and centered and beautiful. And so that really also creates another data set mismatch because the appearance of those images are going to be different. And then a third component is going to be in how those images were collected. There's a mismatch in what content is present. If you remember, I told you how the original images from the older data set was collected. They were collected around 80 concepts. This data set is collected based on real users' needs. So it really reflects, it's often within people's homes or um, indoors, but it really reflects many products that people are interested in. Again, currency, medicine, thermostats, appliances in people's houses, clothes, and learning about what that looks like, what learning whether or not when they clean a toilet or a bathtub, it looks clean. So it's just a difference in the content with a much larger range of the type of content. That is yeah, to recap, we have a larger variety of 
questions and context of images and also issues with the quality of images that are taken. Regarding this this last point, have you tested human accuracy on answering uh, these questions? Like if an image is too blurry, I can imagine a sighted person also would have trouble answering uh, the question. Yeah, so that's a really interesting direction. Um, and it's not unique to questions from people who are blind. This is also relevant to the other visual question answering sets. Often what you will find when you ask 10 different people to answer a question, which is what we did and which is what the preceding data set had also done. If you look at those 10 answers, often you're going to find that they don't all exactly match. It happens more often in our data set than what was observed from the preceding data set, but it happens a lot on both data sets. Over half the time, you're going to find that you'll find differences in answers across 10 different people. And so the question becomes, how do you measure human accuracy? And so that begs the question of what evaluation metric is. So without going into that, dark, dark place. <laughs> what is the appropriate <laughs> metric, which is an important question, but I think beyond the scope of this podcast, it's, we have measured it. It's, I don't remember the exact number. It's in the publications we have, but basically that number sets the bar for what we can hope from a machine to do. And so what we have is we have 10 different answers and you can compare one human answer against the nine others to get some sense of, you know, what's the matching across humans. And you can do that over all iterations of leaving one person out and comparing against other nine. And when you do that, you set some sort of bound, what kind of accuracy that you can expect from a machine and when it would, in theory, pass human performance on that. Is it possible to automatically classify when a question image pair will have an ambiguous sensor? Yeah, so that is possible. And our team has actually done some work in that direction of trying to design classification systems to both, to not only say, can, if I give you this visual question, if I give you a question about an image, will I return a single answer or not? But it's also possible to go farther and say, how many answers might I receive? And also, why might I see different answers? Is it because this question, there's a straightforward where you're going to receive an answer. So what flavor is this? You very clearly see it says sweet potato, right? That's, it's reading the answer. But you might find different answers. And so why might the reason be? Some questions are subjective. Some prompt synonyms to arise. Sometimes people don't know how much detail to provide. If we go to the reading example, maybe people will try to give more text versus less text in answering the question. And then sometimes people do their best. Um, you might have like, what type of plant is this? And you might have one person in the crowd who has the expertise to say, ah, I know exactly what type of plant that is. <laughs> and then others will just try to give something like a green plant or whatever level of detail that they feel. So yes, you can give an indication to the user with some confidence through automation will different answers arise? And we can even go a little bit farther and help them understand why different answers might arise. Yeah, it's pretty cool that you have reasons to why. I, I feel like that could be a really informative signals to the users because it kind of feels like they could 
follow up with something, maybe change the focus of their camera or something. If the problem is like, I don't know, like we can see only a part of the image. So yeah. people complete whatever is the in the rest of uh, rest of the image. Yeah. And go a step further. If you remember, I told you that today in practice, people are relying on remote humans. And I told you with the original application, it could take up to two minutes to get the feedback. Mm. So if you get automated feedback right away, hey, you're not going to get an answer because you might get different answers because it's a really low quality image and people are struggling or the evidence is missing. It allows you to get immediate feedback from automation rather than waiting two minutes to hear from some remote person. Oh, can you try to take another picture? Yeah. It will also be interesting to hear whether we can more explicitly integrate this like mixed learning signals uh, into the training algorithm. But maybe we can come back to that later <laughs> when we talk more about the models. Yeah, I would like to shift more to like what kind of models you have been applying to this data. So if either of you have any questions or comments about the data part. Yeah, I was going to say, so what kind of models? At the time that we began, we took what existed as the state of our models. And at that time, um, when we released the data set, the state of our focused on trying to put some sort of attention mechanisms into the algorithms to help the algorithms know where within an image to look when answering the question. So where is the visual evidence that we need? As time has proceeded, we have held an annual challenge where people can submit their results and the results are announced every year at CDPR. The next one is going to be announced um, mid-June in 2021 at CDPR. For those who don't know, CBPR stands for Computer Vision and Pattern Recognition. And so we announce the winners every year. And every year we get to see what are the latest and greatest tools people are trying to use to tackle this. And so different teams have employed different techniques. With our data set, people have employed using text recognition and text detection. Moreover. Sometimes because the images aren't high quality or there can be obfuscations, people are trying to put in some sort of reasoning about language to account for when the text is incomplete and try to make sensical text. An important thing, our data set has different languages in it. I have not yet seen any teams use different language models. I've seen Hebrew, I've seen Arabic and four languages. And so I have not yet seen anyone deal with a multi-language situation, but that does exist in the data set. I have seen recently some of the teams are using new pre-trained models that are more powerful. And so a recent winner from this past year used uh, LensCert, which is using pre-training on both vision and language. And so those are kind of some of the mechanisms people are using nowadays to try to improve upon our dataset challenge. When we talked about the data set uh, earlier, you mentioned that there is this fundamental difference between the kinds of VQA data sets that people built earlier and the one that you were working on, given that uh, your data set reflects uh, the real information need that people have. Did that also reflect in the kinds of models you were building? I mean, you, you did talk about text detection and stuff, but was, was there anything fundamentally different in the kinds of models you were using? I don't know that it would be fundamentally different. I would not say that. I would say that our data set has really helped the community release new data set challenges. So what can I say about our data set? 
it's really, really hard. <laughs> it's super open-ended. It really captures the messiness of it. And so what other groups have done since this, when I say our data set, I'm just going to call it the VizWiz data set. That's what we call it. <laughs> since we released the VizWiz data set, other people have re- released data sets that address sub-problems that have been exposed by our data. And one of those is answering questions about text and images. And because of that, there have become sub-communities that are addressing sub-problems that are relevant to visual question answering. And so what I have witnessed mostly is people going in and becoming generalists across the sub-problems of the QA and figuring out how do you make this really hefty model that can work well. Now, let me caveat that. The challenge is how do you go and take the latest and greatest that are addressing sub-problems and do well on our data set challenge when our data set challenge reflects data from real users, which means we don't have a lot of data. Other data sets can be huge because they're contract. You can go and collect more and more and more data. How do you go and take the latest and greatest of the tools that come from all these different data set challenges and make them work when you don't have a lot of training data and test data available? And so that's one of the problems that we have. Maybe we should talk about the difference in scales of the data sizes. Uh, how big is your data set and how big are the prior VQA data sets? Yeah, so... Our data set is just over 32,000 visual questions in total. The original one was smaller, but we did go through to try to increase the size and augment ones where there are questions about private content. And we removed the private content from those images to allow for us to increase the size slightly. Other data sets, one thing they did to increase the scope is they asked multiple questions per image. And so now we have I think on the scale across all the different data sets, millions of visual questions out there where you have some redundancy of how many questions are about images. So magnitude, you're talking about you know, tens to hundreds of magnitude of order difference in the size of the data. Yeah, but 32,000 is still a lot of data, <laughs> at least coming from NLP. Yeah, yeah uh, of It feels like a pretty decent size, which makes me think about pre-trained models that you have already mentioned, because in NLP, where we deal only with text, if we take a pre-trained language model, and if we have 32,000 more instances for fine-tuning, we would be like really good to go. So can you tell a little bit more about whether pre-trained models helped with this problem of data scarcity? Yes. So I had the same intuition that you just described when we embarked on benchmarking algorithms. And I was really surprised when I saw that we got the exact same performance, whether we used pre-trained models on the previous large-scale data set that were then fine-tuned to the business engine, the business visual engines, versus if we took those architectures and we retrained them from scratch using only the business data. Got it. So why might that be? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So why might that be? I think there's many reasons. And one harkens back to what I said earlier in the podcast, which is how prediction is done. It's treated as a classification problem where you predict you have 3,000 possible classes. And the prediction is going to be an answer amongst those 3,000. And if you look at what is the match between the most common 3,000 answers for the VizWiz visual questions, versus the most common 3,000 answers from the prior data set. That's a big mismatch. And so pre-training 
isn't really going to help you much because it's just domain shift and the kinds of answers that you're going to find. Yeah. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. Like if the pre-training data is still way different from your fine-tuning data, then yeah, the the motivation of pre-training is kind of lost. Um, yeah, I mean, do you think we could collect more images? Though, like it seems like it's harder to collect questions about images than it's to collect images. So it seems like we could maybe improve the visual part a little bit with pre-training. Yeah, so I've seen since we released the Visuals dataset a few efforts that have increased how much content we have. So one project came out of South Korea, and the authors of that work actually paid people who are blind to use a mobile phone application that the authors created and said, you know, go take a bunch of images and ask questions about them in your daily life and agree to share your data with us and we'll release it. It's a little bit contrived because they were paid, but nonetheless, it resulted in additional questions about images. In addition, there's another team that's affiliated with Microsoft who put out a new data set called Orbit, which is a similar pipeline. Build an app, ask people who are blind to use it, and pay them to use it. But in that case, now it's not just images, it's actually videos. And so we are starting to see more data coming out. It's slow, but definitely there are mechanisms in place and there has been some momentum. So that's been exciting progress and that's in the public domain. I do know that there are many companies who are already providing applications for this population. And within house, they have a huge amount of data, right? So... You know, that's great because it means that progress can happen within the tech atmosphere. It's a bummer in the sense that it's not in the public sphere. And so we can't compete against each other and have it really push forward within the academic and heavy research realms. But nonetheless, there's a lot of data in tech and it is being used constantly to improve upon algorithms. Yeah, it is a bit unfortunate that you don't have access to it. But it's also good that there are applications for these purposes. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned text recognition. I would like to hear a little bit more about that because I don't know how people approach this at all. Can you, can you tell us what is approach for text recognition in uh, images? Yeah, so for the most part, people used off-the-shelf text recognition tools. They weren't innovating in that sense. Where they were innovating is how they fit text recognition into the architecture and how they dealt with the unique challenges of the business set. So as one example, people who are blind can't verify the quality of their images. They can't verify the quality. It means that you can have text that's not going to be beautifully centered and in the position you'd expect. So one of the things that people did was data augmentation where they took the original images and they would rotate it, rotate it, rotate it and train the algorithm over and over where one thing would be universal. Another thing we've explored is introducing some quality issues to those images to further enhance, to do further data augmentation. So not only do rotation, but make the images brighter or darker to reflect overexposure and underexposure of images when you have text in it. And so playing with different games of how do you alter the quality of images so that they really capture the wide range of quality issues that we might see from a blind photographer. 
and ensuring that an algorithm can read text in all those extremes. Unsolved problem. So anyone listening, if you want to explore that, definitely an exciting unsolved problem. Other innovations that I have seen are, I already mentioned that people not only are using some sort of OCR capability, but are starting to do some sort of semantic reasoning to fill out what's there. People who are blind can't guarantee that the entire object of interest are in the image. So you might see K-I-T-K-A and miss the last letter. But if you have some knowledge of navigating the real world, you might be able to realize that that's a Kit Kat. So you need to complete the work. And then something I have not seen, but I want to put this out there is the next wave of innovation is starting to do some higher level basic. Right. So answering a question such as I gave the example earlier of is this medicine safe for my child who is 10 years old? Being able to go and read the text of what is on either the warning label, if it's present, if it's not present, being able to read the label, go find the right knowledge source, locate the answer in that knowledge source, and then get so really going a step further and starting to do reasoning about text. I have not seen that, but I think that that's going to be a direction of innovation that will come soon. Yeah, so many challenges uh, <laughs> ahead of us. Since you have in your work also highlighted some other challenges and new tasks emerged from them, we already mentioned, I think, on unrecognizable content and unanswerable questions, and you touched on privacy. Can we talk a little bit more uh, about that? Like, what kind of image content is considered private and which type of privacy content leaks are of a greater or lesser concern for people who are blind? Yeah, great question. So the issue of privacy was very surprising, I want to say, in starting this discussion about it. I was floored when I first got my hands on this data and I started to look through it because there was so much. And you asked what kind was I saw things like people's passports, their credit cards, medication information, nudity, addresses, not just home addresses, but also the restaurant addresses, library addresses. There was information about people's receipts, not receipts, um, their statements from banks, as an example, uh, pictures of people's monitors, their computer monitors, where you could see their mail. There's other things that not everyone would agree that it's private, but there's things that are sensitive. So pregnancy test, that's pretty personal. Um, someone's tattoo, it can be identifiable. So that was definitely in the data as well. Um, I'm sure there's a lot more that I saw, but it was pretty shocking to me how much was there. And what's, what I also found really surprising was that, so we went, we started off and we created a taxonomy of what kind of private content was available. And so that harkens to your first question of what was the private content that was available. And we came up with 19 different categories, many of which I just listed. Uh, faces would be another one. That's a pretty standard one. And we annually went through the data over and over to identify which of these categories were present. And whenever we found them, we demarcated the boundary of it to allow for removing that content while preserving the image because, again, we didn't have much data. So we wanted to keep as much data as we could without sharing any of the private content. 
So we did that. And then we had a follow-up question, which was, well, why is this happening so often? Is it accidental or not? Um, half the time it was not accidental. So half the time we found privacy, it was because people felt like the choice to share their private content to get the answer was more important than to keep it. So you can imagine trying to go and take your pills for some illness you have. Do you disclose your medical situation and get the right information about how do I take this medicine or do you not and risk your health, right? It's, it seems like a choice in some sense, but it's not really a choice. Like you have to, <laughs> they had, they felt they had to, I think often um, disclose their private. And so that was really surprising. And so what does that mean for us as an AI community? What, what's the next step that we need to do? Um, we, one, should be designing algorithms that can detect private content and of the categories that I described and probably more. Like the question of how do you do that when you can't curate a large scale collection of private content, right? And then two, we need to also design algorithms that can answer questions about private content. And that's really important. It's really important to be able to read text as part of that because a lot of the private categories were about textual information. I described to you home addresses, bills, passports, sell credit cards, right? A lot of it really is about analyzing and understanding the actual content that's being read. Thank you for, for the overview. There is a lot. Uh, is there any regulation about like people who opt in and they know they, they are sharing their private information, but as you said, they still think that's a worthwhile thing to do. Is there anything to protect them after they submit their private information? It's going to depend on the company. So different companies have written different, they have all different policies. And so some of the companies will explicitly share that they are recording the data and it may be sold to third parties. There are other companies who opt out of even recording it because they don't want that liability on their shoulders. So it's definitely, it definitely needs activism to demand more, more guardrails around what we allow and don't allow as a society because, yeah, maybe they're opting into agreeing to whatever the company is saying they'll do with the data. But again, these users aren't really offered with much choice. The alternative often is pretty, it's, it's egregious. They don't know what kind of medicine to take as, you know, as an extreme example. And so there's no government regulation on this. It's each company making the decision. And then it's for the different users to advocate for themselves. There are a number of users who have become strong advocates and go to Congress in the United States and speak about issues like these. I do know of people who are trying to push, push for greater regulation and control of their data. It's not solved. That is. And this is one of the one of the vis uh, tasks right now as well. Yeah. So I told you how. We followed the model that previous people have done. So I told you, previous people said, oh, we have a collection of images and they collected metadata to prompt different kinds of tasks, whether it's in classification or visual question answering. We've done the same. We have our set of images, which serve as images. We started with visual question answering. We have a task for privacy detection. We have a task for detecting whether or not a question about an image is asking about private content. Um, and then we have other tasks 
such as deciding whether or not a question is answerable, an image is recognizable, and captioning an image, just giving a generic description of it, and a number of more. And it's worthwhile just to say we do have a public website where all this is located. Um, it's biswiz.org. And for whoever wants to go and see the data, we also have a visualization tool where people can browse through the data and get a sense of what does it look like? What are people asking about? Yeah, right. I was wondering if the data collection process is still ongoing. It's not. So the application that my colleague had used was deployed between 2011 and 2015. Following that, industry noticed that there was a real need for this and there was a chance also for profits and you know not just direct profits from the target users but when you have users who are willing to share their data so regularly they could get profits by owning data and so the app ended because industry jumped and started to provide better services and so the data now exists in industry and lives with those who work with companies I see. So is VizViz the largest publicly available data set for this task? That is correct. It was the first and it remains the largest. I see. Yeah. So if you were to resume the project and uh, collect more data, would you do anything differently? That's an interesting question. So yes, I would. I mean, we have some innovation already, which we can, we can deploy in an application. Um, so previously, people would just take an image and then hope that it had a content of interest that was sufficiently high quality in order to get an answer. I would do some sort of different mechanism for data collection, where maybe we collect multiple snapshots of the content of interest so that we could see if the aggregate, from that aggregate of data, if we can find what's useful and that would allow us to start designing algorithms that can more actively help a user find the answer to the question rather than requiring them to be great photographers. That's not a crazy idea. We already have that with banks. I, whenever I want to deposit a check, the mobile phone application I use helps me center my camera perfectly. So I submit an image that's really going to be helpful for that bank, right? So this isn't a crazy idea, but, uh, and we have some initial algorithms that can help in that direction. And so I would design an app that would collect more data and also steer the user to understand whether there's any visible content or not, whether or not it's believable that the question is answerable, and maybe even give them feedback to know whether their question would arise, would result in multiple answers or not. So really just giving them more feedback in that photography process and collecting more data from them so that we don't assume that the model is you snap one picture and you get one shot. Instead, we move to, you can have burst photography or a video or maybe even like 360 cameras, right? Like just rethinking about how we do that data collection. Going just a little bit back, is there any collaboration between academia and industry right now, or this is solely in the hands of the industry? Great question. Huge collaboration. I have been very fortunate to get lots of funding from industry to enable this. And without that funding, it wouldn't be possible. The list includes Microsoft, it includes Amazon, Adobe, 
trying to think of those who've directly funded it recently now, Facebook and I, I'm collaborating with Facebook on this. And Google sponsored an award for one of our data set challenges. And so that's, yeah, I guess that that's the list of the tech people who are already involved. And I've been contacted by even more people in tech. In addition, we've had those who have comp- competed in the data set challenge be from industry. So IBM just won one of our data set challenges this past year with an awesome algorithm that I'm super excited about. Like it, it could change people's lives today, right? You know, it's not just, you can deploy these algorithms and really improve upon what's available. And so, yeah, huge overlap. Um, I just want to make a shout out. Microsoft has a special funding program called AI Accessibility where all they do is they accept applications for people who have an idea of how to design some tool, some algorithm that will, you know, it's AI for accessibility, some AI algorithm that will make a more inclusive and accessible world. And the money has to be spent every year. And so they've been very generous funders of our work. And so I would encourage others, if you are interested in the space, look to apply for funding from Microsoft. So yes. <laughs> awesome yeah that's that's great to hear and also that they include experts uh, like you in this work yeah it's it's been re- and I, I go even farther it's not just the funding that is supported it's regular collaborations that happen we have regular calls every month and it's also access even though we can't access the data we can access the people that can see the data and we can have conversations and do a reality check are you working on the right problem are you not and so because this is an application different, uh, application specific space, it's really important to be grounded in reality. And tech has really supported people like me to stay in reality rather than imagining what we think is Got the right answer. Awesome. All right. Is there anything else either of you would like to talk about? I don't think so. I mean, this has been a really fun conversation. I just want to say thanks to both of you for inviting me and having this conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for joining. I definitely learned a lot in this one hour. Yeah, thanks a lot. This was a fun conversation.